Differences Universe at the busy intersection of faith and reason. I'm Doug Keck, intersecting this week, at least on our Wednesday show, with uh, St. Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday coming together. So a very interesting show ahead. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, magiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and spitzercenter.org. And naturally, as we mention every week, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and our EW10 On Demand page. And while you're checking out our ever-burgeoning On Demand page, check out the Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. He's our dynamic deacon on his new radio show as he covers hot topics of the day, helps listeners develop deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. He's terrific. You'll love him if you haven't heard him. Check it out. And it's all free, on demand right now, anytime you feel like listening to it through EWTN's on-demand page and also our podcast, Central. This week we continue with the cultural consequences of <clears throat> pornography and some other issues from Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, available naturally, as always, through our catalog show and also our catalog itself online. And the book of the month for February, coming from EWTN Publishing, Sounds like one of Father's books, but it's not. It's New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by our good friend over in Spain, Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. And he's our, our great compadre over there in Spain with EWTN's programming. And with that said, we talk to our own compadre from the West Coast, the one and only Padre, Father Spitzer. Great to have you on the program as always, Father. Thanks so much, Doug. Great to be with you, too, on this wonderful Ash Wednesday. Absolutely. If you want to kick everything off with a prayer, especially today, I think it would you be bet. appropriate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, on this Ash Wednesday, we ask not only for your inspiration, but also great motivation towards self-sacrifice and a motivation to deeply uh, imbibe your spirit within our hearts through uh, our sacrifices and through our desire to be closer to you. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us, Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything that we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Always great, Father. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition between uh, St. Valentine's Day and, and, and obviously Ash Wednesday coming together. Yeah. I didn't check it out. I wonder when the last That's time right. that actually happened, that they actually coincided. Uh, somebody yeah. probably... Uh, yeah. Our super producer, I'm sure, could check that up and figure that out. But anyway, I just <laughs> thought of it now. And I still say St. Valentine's Day. I know it's not officially on the calendar, but I always feel like they've secularized right. something that was uh, somewhat at least holy in, in, in a sense uh, over yeah. the years. And we've lost so yeah. much. It's always good to remind people where it came from, too, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think uh, a little bit of charity has turned into romantic love. and. Now, uh, it's, you know, of course, uh, it's for every uh, sweetheart, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, which is fine. You know, I mean, I think it's great to celebrate uh, uh, people who are, uh, you know, in love with each other. And right. so, I, I mean, I also uh, send Valentines to my sisters or to my mm -hmm. mother when she was alive, you know, right. and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, 
It's just a sign of affection. Right. So anyway, of course, yeah, when we were kids, it was. But of course, Ash Wednesday's the big right. deal. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, of course, there was yeah. a lot of pain and suffering when you go to school and nobody gave you a Valentine, which was usually an indication oh, of yeah. your lack of popularity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of suffering tied in with that. So uh, it wasn't always happening. Yeah. And of course, they checked it out. 2018 is the last time. So I guess it did roll like a week. Uh, you know six years ago so yeah. it was sooner than I thought it was yeah. I didn't remember that being together yeah. it seemed kind of like a surprise that both of them came up but with that said let's look at some articles yeah. that are out there uh, Senator sure. Tim Scott introduces a bill to protect pregnancy center funding okay uh, and this came mm -hmm. from uh, Catholic vote said that of course he's the senator Republican senator from South Carolina introduced mm -hmm. a bill that supports families in need and protects the funding of pregnancy centers from the Biden administration's attempts of restriction, something you probably weren't aware of. Uh, now, apparently, the <laughs> act protects the use of what's called temporary assistance for needy families. It's called TANF, T-A-N-F-F, funds for pregnancy. Apparently, in October of last year, the Biden administration issued a proposal to rule to amend the program's regulations, which could restrict states from using that funding for pregnancy centers. So. Uh, you know, he's trying to make sure that that's not the case, but people should be aware that, that these things are out there and being done by our, the administration of our Catholic president uh, that people should be aware of because yeah. sometimes they lose sight. Another story I thought that, that kind of picks up on something we've talked about quite a bit, and, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of mm -hmm. had some concerns about what's going on here, but certainly what's going on in Canada when it comes to euthanasia and things like that. So we have to have a shout out right. to the diocese in Edmonton. Uh, they released a comprehensive mm -hmm. guide to understanding the church's teachings on assisted suicide, instructing the faithful not to take part in it, neither for themselves or nor with another person. They said rising up with, with the rise of popularity of assisted suicides, otherwise known, I guess, in Canada as what they call MAID, medical aid in dying. I don't know, maybe it's... Dying, yeah. Yeah, maybe it's used everywhere. Same I here. Don't know. Yeah, is it? Okay, it's yeah. first mm -hmm. made Catholic response mm -hmm. to euthanasia. Uh, it goes on to say the Catholic Church is drawing on the deepest sources of tradition, remains strongly opposed to any form of euthanasia, assisted suicide. It goes on, euthanasia and assisted suicide are gravely contrary to the dignity of the human person, respect due to the living God are created. <clears throat> As such, the Catholic Church is strongly opposed to any form of euthanasia and assisted suicide. The guide also takes issue with the ambiguous and misleading nature of the term made, since it points out that the phrases medical assistance and dying and dying with dignity have historically meant accompanying a patient with good medical care as they promote as they approach natural death. These euphemistic terms, the guide stated, are innocuous words or expression that veil the truth that they're really killing people. So we have to salute the bishop yeah. and the diocese there for standing up. Absolutely, and I think, again, the euphemisms are designed to mislead people very intentionally, mm -hmm. <clears throat> trying to make them think that this is no big deal, but it definitely is um, an act of uh, intervention mm -hmm. uh, to kill somebody. And, of course, if you're requesting it, uh, you're responsible for the suicide itself. And so uh, just to let people know, it's... No doubt, it's it's suicide, and right. even though the physician is giving you the um, the uh, injection, or in the case of a pill, mm -hmm. uh, you're taking the pill yourself. It is no question, it is suicide. But the main thing to remember is, you know, when uh, it, when uh, most of the pain 
um, and the depression that comes from uh, you know a terminal illness mm -hmm. being diagnosed uh, when that happens uh, most of the pain can be controlled and by far like we're talking well mm -hmm. over 90% of pain can be controlled and more than that the depression can also be uh, very much modulated and if a physician shows support um, as uh, the great studies of Dr. Pellegrino show. Mm -hmm. If a physician shows support and that the person has a good life to live and that they're worth, uh, worthy of, of living and so forth and the physician displays this, uh, people uh, reverse their suicide requests almost instantly. But if the physician says something like, well, I just want to encourage you uh, to go ahead and do this and end your suffering, what the patient thinks is, oh, I'm being signaled Mm -hmm. to kill myself because my life isn't worth living. So the um, angle of physician support is uh, as important mm -hmm. as the support of relatives and right. uh, good friends. And in addition to that, pain can be controlled. And um, even as Peter Admiral, who was the big Dutch suicide advocate, mm -hmm. said, you know, pain is no longer a reason for assisted suicide. It's no longer um, uh, you know, a, a tenable reason today because vast majority of the pain can be controlled. Right. And as I said, depression can be modulated. So uh, essentially, uh, Kathleen Foley had a, a wonderful set of studies on this. Uh, she was the head of Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Institute there, and she did a series of studies showing the mm -hmm. reversal of suicide requests, uh, like uh, well over 90% of the time when pain and depression are controlled right. adequately. Right, and certainly even the people who sign up for these living wills or some advanced directive where they say they want to yeah. do this, suddenly when it actually comes to, uh, you know, <clears throat> when it's going to happen, suddenly decide that maybe the, uh, they have a different opinion now that they're actually literally faced with it. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I don't have to tell you what the social consequences are of mm -hmm. assisted suicide, because the minute you let that out the, the, the door or through the door, what winds up happening is that um, an involuntary uh, suicide, uh, uh, death, mm -hmm. uh, involuntary euthanasia becomes a, a regular part of the medical professions uh, schemas. They mm -hmm. basically amp up the morphine if you're on a drip mm -hmm. or, you know, people um, in the hospice uh, a movement. I'm not saying that they do this on any regular basis, but uh, it's certainly easy enough to keep amping that up mm -hmm. uh, until a person, you know, finally the therapeutic index of morphine, which is pretty wide as it is, you can still amp it up enough so that it cease, causes a cessation of respiration. So the main thing, though, is, uh, is um, you know, it just happens, and uh, the Remling studies in Holland show pretty mm -hmm. conclusively that the minute assisted suicides mm -hmm. increase, you can just see tracking right along with it is involuntary right. suicides, where the doctors start saying, you know, that person, they're really down on their luck, quality of life is low, you know, I think it's time for them uh, right. to, to sort of end their lives. I can help them click, uh, yeah. you know, just amp up that morphine drip and mm -hmm. uh, we'll let them go. and." Uh, and just explain, you know, uh, to the uh, uh, to the survivors, to the relatives that uh, they pass naturally, uh, right. because after all, morphine is a natural way of dying, quote right. unquote. Well, maybe they so should. So there uh, you go. So. Right. Maybe they should adapt the name from maid to maim, so it should uh, medically assisting in murder, 
instead of uh, you know dying or something <laughs> and call it maiming. That I would, like it. That Maim. would be more appropriate. Yeah. That would be more appropriate. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. That's probably closer oh, to yeah. it. Oh yeah, no, I think it's uh, yeah, medically assist, uh, uh, aid, uh, med right. med medical assistance in, in murder. In, yeah. in murder, uh, <laughs> meme, yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, uh, let's see. There's yeah. another story here, obviously, uh, here on uh, Ash Wednesday when we're doing the program. Uh, article in the Catholic uh -huh. World Report talking about fasting, and the idea of fasting is, is far more than just an obligation, and it quotes a couple of... Uh, People of, of uh, St. John Chrysostom talking about fasting is actually a medicine. Uh, in Matthew it says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. And this one point that this person puts out is there's lots of things about it, but he says the emphasis with few exceptions is usually on technique, on what to do and how to do it. What is often missing, unfortunately, is the theological core and foundational vision of what Lent is and how it reveals truths about ultimate things. It goes on to say that really this season is really about our need for repentance. Your thoughts? Well, I think that's true. I think sometimes people um, just find something to do because that's what people are doing. Mm -hmm. But um, if you find something or you, you don't have to do something um, uh, huge, but it's something that you like and the, the fact is to make a, a sacrifice, to mm -hmm. give up something because you love God. You're basically saying, you know, Lord, I, I love you and I just want to, you know, show my love for you and an act of self-sacrifice. And of course, I can't make a sacrifice that will uh, make a difference, you know, to, to you, like, mm -hmm. you, you know, I'll bring home uh, some something or bring to the church something. So what I'll do is I'll just give up something that I really like as a sacrificial act and remember Jesus defines self-sacrifice as charity right mm. the highest kind of charity is to give one's life for one's friends well the same thing with mm. every uh, sacrifice so the main thing during Lent is just remember mm. try to turn your sacrifices into an act of love for God just mm. say you know Lord uh, as I give up the, you know this whatever it is this beer at dinner or this mm. dessert or these sweets I'm, okay. I'm giving them up because I want to prove my love for you, right. and I do love you, and here's the proof right. in action, not just in Spitzerian words. So, so was I mean, that, that's, uh, uh, that's was the that idea. some self-revelatory comments you just made there? I heard something about giving up beer. Oh, you mean uh, about the some, beer? Yeah, oh, yeah. Is, you well, refer, I like to have referencing a, a beer some, with. Because I know in the yeah. past you've mentioned yeah, I that. Uh, I think, right? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. In fact, I. Uh, um, you know, I, I, you know, about four times a week or five times a week, I'll have a beer with dinner, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, so uh, I just, uh, for Lent, I, I like that beer, mm -hmm. so, um, but uh, I'll give it up. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I don't have a beer at dinner if I got to work in the evenings mm -hmm. or something, but, you know, so about... That's uh, when Joan yeah, has a beer, right? Times. Joan has beers on those That's nights, right. I think. <laughs> That's right, the poor thing, she's working all the time, but anyway... Uh, she does get her get get her beer, but anyway, I like that, and of course, I like uh, you know if, if a dessert happens to appear somewhere, mm -hmm. I was never one for turning it down. Mm -hmm. So um, I do during Lent, I will turn it down, mm -hmm. but it's just a little act right. of love uh, for the Lord, and I do try right. to, you know, vigilantly increase my patience and right. things of that nature uh, to sort of give God a more positive right. gift. 
as well as a give up gift, a right. uh, self-sacrificing one. So uh, yeah, and I just mm -hmm. do it out of love for him and desire to follow right. him. Right. Well, I was thinking about it too, it's just the idea that, and w which is why I think seeing priests in their collars and sisters in their habits is the same idea. It stops you, it breaks you out of your normal thing to say, oh, wait a second, I, I gave that up, I can't eat that, I can't have meat today, or, yeah. you know, I gave up the dessert yeah. for, and, it, and it, it reminds you, you know, that it's not, you know, that there's something else going on, I think. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, it, 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 you know, the circuit uh, of going right to the cookie there after mm -hmm. dinner, uh, you, all of a sudden you, you think about it and you mm -hmm. think, yeah, what's my most important priority in my mm -hmm. life? Mm -hmm. Well, it's my religion, it's God, it's my uh, relationship with the Lord, it's my love of the mm -hmm. Lord, and that uh, <coughs> gives you a good reminder anyway. Right, absolutely, so, just um, a minor thing. So but, yeah. I think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Here's another uh, article. Uh, it was actually done as a story uh, through CNA and also on our, on our News Nightly show. Uh, but it's based on a book uh, that just came out uh, called Get Married. I don't know if you've heard about it or not. Uh, anyway, it's no, by I haven't. A, uh, Brad Wilcox, professor of sociology, University of Virginia, and director of the school's national management proje project. And it kind of follows some of the things you've said. Men and women who are married and attend church regularly, this is from a study from his book, are among the happiest mm -hmm. couples according to data compiled by a prominent socio yes. sociologist professor. Uh, he says, contrary to popular perception, uh, Wilcox says, data indicates that married men and women are markedly happier than unmarried counterparts. In fact, data points us exactly mm -hmm. in that direction as opposed to single people or childless women. He said, what we see is that for both men and women, the path of prosperity and happiness kind of runs through marriage. So both women and men are married, for instance, are almost twice as likely to be happy with their lives compared to their single peers. Goes on to say, what we see in this data is that couples who attend <clears throat> church together are about 50 percentage points higher, uh, more likely to, uh, to be happy with their marriage. And they're about 30 to 50 percent less likely to get divorced, depending on the data set. Declining divorce rates, he says, rates in recent years are a sign of encouragement. However, we also have a declining rate of people who are getting married. And he made the point that the 70s was known as the divorce revolution. He said, however, most of the couples who are getting married today are going to go the distance. He said, the bad news for American adults, we're mm -hmm. still seeing a pretty marked decline in marriage rates. And they call that a closing of the American heart. And I know some people have talked about the idea, and I've seen in other articles related to this, is this idea of instead mm -hmm. of of seeing instead of seeing the the uh, marriage as the foundation to one's life, they see it as like a capstone yeah. to their life, and so they have to build the foundation mm -hmm. first, and then they think about getting married, which is different than it was yeah, for yeah. let's say people of my generation, baby boomers. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. They they decide that they're going to build the foundation by themselves mm -hmm. um, and then you know uh, top it off with marriage which is absolutely the wrong thing to do you need mm -hmm. to build it together mm -hmm. and so uh, the and of course the the joint religious commitment uh, that came out by the way uh, Dr. Wilcox's studies and Dr. Uh, Thornton's studies they definitely uh, coincide perfectly mm -hmm. because it's a reciprocal commitment 
um, uh, between um, religion and marriage. Mm -hmm. So a very strong religious commitment within marriage strengthens the marriage, the satisfaction within the marriage, but a very good um, strong marriage in mm -hmm. turn strengthens religious commitment. And so it builds on each other and the reciprocity does create really happy individuals, very happy couples, and very happy children who are in the stable marriage as a result of that um, uh, commitment. Mm -hmm. And of course there are going to be times when you know things go awry or there are arguments or things. Mm -hmm. But again, as Dr. Wilcox and Dr. Thornton and a, a bunch of other studies from many different universities show is that the couples that have a strong marriage and, and strong religion reinforcing each other, that that basically also um, uh, leads to resolution of mm -hmm. conflicts very, very quickly by comparison to uh, those uh, commitments that don't have religion in the picture mm -hmm. or there is no marriage, uh, they're just in a cohabitating relationship. So all these things are, um, I mean, what Dr. Wilcox saying is pretty much right. um, reinforcing right. like 14 other major university studies and good old Father Peyton was right long ago. <laughs> the couple that go. prays together stays together. It's so true. Amen. I mean, it's just utterly, st these are all secular surveys, by the way. Right. Um, these are not, you know, Catholic, Spitarian studies supporting these claims. They're definitely right. uh, secular surveys done by universities, et cetera. Okay. One last story before we get to some questions. Uh, a story for our, our Sunday visitor. A new report shows continued decrease in the number of permanent vocations to consecrated life in the U.S., but key factors such as family life, devotional practices, Catholic education, and personal encouragement can positively impact these numbers. It's from the end of January. It came out of Cara at Georgetown. Uh, the study mm -hmm. uh, goes on to say we're... We are finding that there's a continuous decline in the number of men and women making final profession to religious life each year. Uh, it says almost all survey participants, 99% were raised by their biological parents during the most formative part of their childhood. Close to 9 in 10 or 88% were raised by a married couple. Respondents reported that Eucharistic adoration, 82%, the rosary, 72%, retreat, 72%, were among their most common formative prayer experiences with four out of five respondents regularly practicing adoration prior to entering religious life. So we see how important that is to one's spiritual life. And finally, you know, at the same time, more than 55% reported that one or more persons had discouraged them from pursuing a religious vocation with women more likely than men to report this experience. Your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Well, my thoughts are I couldn't agree with Cara Moore. That's the Center for Applied Research in the mm -hmm. Apostolate, a very good um, uh, uh, sociological mm -hmm. group. They uh, uh, concentrate, of course, focus totally on uh, religion and specifically Catholic religious commitment. Uh, that's a very good study, and I think. Um, uh, no doubt, uh, mm -hmm. the, again, if you're praying, that's going to be a huge factor. And adoration is a great way to pray, mm -hmm. whether it's in an individual sense or group adoration. The great part about adoration is it focuses you on the Eucharist. It focuses you on the presence of Jesus. It helps you to pray. And I think um, it doesn't surprise me in the least mm -hmm. uh, that that's uh, not only going to help in uh, vocation, um, you know, being started, mm -hmm. but as the study implies, it's going to help the, uh, uh, the vocation to reach final um, uh, commitment, you know, which is what we call final vows. 
um, and uh, when final vows are, are there, then you have a mm -hmm. pretty secure commitment uh, going forward that the person is going to stay mm -hmm. in consecrated life as a sister right. or a priest or, I mean, a religious priest or uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, I think um, I think I'm not surprised by anything in the study. I think it's right on the marker. But the prayer is a key factor. Of course, uh, the reverence at, at, at mass and the importance, the centrality of the Eucharist mm -hmm. uh, in one's life is very important. I'm surprised that that uh, wasn't actually said, mm -hmm. but I think maybe that was a given in the study along with adoration. Mm -hmm. But you know, most of the people who right. you know are obviously as a religious, you're attending. Um, right. And so, uh, well, I was skipping around, celebrating mass so, every day. So. I was yeah, skipping yeah. around in the thing to get <clears> some <throat> highlights. So it may actually be elsewhere, and this was mm -hmm. not the study itself, but uh, yeah. an, uh, an article about a the summary. study. So right, exactly. So uh, let's move on to some questions uh, before we get to, sure. uh, we got several ones here. Somebody wrote to us following up on a prior discussion. That means it's, they must be very happy. Uh, here's, here's a question, uh, and it's actually from somebody who wrote to us and have some concerns because we kind of talked about, you know, somebody was asking what happens to children aborted, miscarried children, what about baptism? And you, you were kind of talking about how mm -hmm. the Lord, from your perspective, certainly takes care of those. Children is going to have yeah. those children be suffering. You know, it's not like the mm -hmm. old days where no, the church didn't officially taught it. Limbo. Certainly, when I was a kid, you know, they kind of talked about limbo as if it was actually there. I didn't know what, whether that the mm -hmm. church wasn't official; it was just a supposition or someone posited it. Yeah. But with that being a theological opinion, yeah. right? That mm -hmm. might be an answer to a conundrum, so to speak, that people had. Mm -hmm. But this person, yeah. I guess, their question is well. You know, if, if, if they don't have to go to, uh, if a child before the state of reason can go to heaven without baptism, why don't we just baptize them later, like, you know, when they go to confession? Or, you know, uh, what doesn't original sin have a negative impact on well, uh, you got to remember that original sin doesn't, uh, it's not a committed sin. Mm -hmm. It's an inherited defect. Right. In other words, I mean, if you're an infant, I mean, concupiscence is not your major problem. Here right. Because an act of the will is not, you know, uh, you know going to be forthcoming for a year or so. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, essentially what you have is, uh, you know, an inherited uh, defect where uh, basically you didn't commit it. There wasn't a, a, a free sin. So you don't have to, a uh, freely committed sin. So you don't have to worry, uh, you know, about something like that affecting the child. So of course you're, you're gonna get some graces to overcome concupiscence, but at the same time, um, you know, the, uh, those graces won't be necessary for the child. Mm -hmm. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, yes, I mean, even though the, uh, you know, you. you you go to heaven and God will take care of that child. It's not that he's, you know, simply remitting, mm -hmm. um, you know, like a sin that was committed. The child hasn't committed any sins yet. He, he is still innocent. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, he himself cannot jeopardize uh, that salvation. And if I th think if it was the parent's intention to baptize that child and you know, that child dies, you know, or even mm -hmm. if it, they didn't have an intention to baptize that child. If he dies in innocence, God, of course, is right. going to take care of that child. There's no question about it in my mind. I mean, uh, just right. uh, the idea of, you know, right. putting God's compassion behind right. 
some uh, you know legal uh, prescription right. well, uh, doesn't make right. any sense whatsoever. Now, church never right. intended that anyway. Right. Well, I think what happens is people see those mm -hmm. as excuses to throw the rules, the baby out with the bathwater along, you know, with the rules, so to yeah. speak. And, and the yeah, idea, exactly. at the same time, my understanding is, you know, we, we are given certain rules and regulations as the normal way of things to happen. But God's not yeah. restricted by what, what he's told us to exactly. set up, right? So, but we can't right. count exactly. on the fact that he's going to do that for us because he has given us a roadmap of how to do it. Exactly. So, right. I mean, that's exactly the point. We can encounter an occasion of sin and freely commit that sin. Mm -hmm. Whereas the child that we're speaking about simply is not in that position whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So he can't or she can't possibly jeopardize, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, the, their own salvation. So in other words, God's going to look at that and just say, okay, that child is going to to come and be with me mm -hmm. um, because I, the, he or she has a soul, they're capable of love, and mm -hmm. here we go. Well, so, I mean, that's, yeah. uh, I'm very convinced of uh, that. And we don't know what that capability of responding positively to God in that moment is either, right? I mean, yeah, right? Sure, I mean, well, you'd have to actually see how the fully developed child uh, is, of course. Uh, you know, let's face it, you know, anybody can reject God, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, God is going to give them that capacity when they have the capacity for free will. Uh, you know, I'm sure they can, uh, the child will be able to reject God if, if um, you know, in order to be free. Right. And let's face it, the angels rejected God. Mm -hmm. There they were in heaven and they saw the mystery and the love of God and still right. said, non servium right. and so um, there's you know i'm sure god will allow each and every person uh, to be free right. whether it's here on this earth or in the next life right. okay with that <laughs> said we are going to take a break and give you a chance to get some uh, water maybe there father and stay with us <laughs> okay. more questions ahead with father spitzer in his universe stay with us Thank you so much for staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. Our topic will be cultural consequences of pornography from Father's book. And of course, don't forget it's Lent and our own Father Joseph has some Lenten reflections that you can get for free. Just sign up at EWTN.com forward slash Lent and he's the best. Check that out, Father Joseph's Lenten reflections. And with that said, we'll uh, reflect on some other questions that Father Spitzer's going to get thrown at him. <laughs> the first one here, Dear Father Spitzer, I was recently told that if you want an item blessed, such as a rosary, you do not need a priest. Any Catholic can do the blessing as long as it's done in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Ghost, that's interesting. I had always heard that you needed a priest or a deacon. Is this correct that any Catholic can bless something? Cliff. Well, you can pray for another person right. or you can bless them in 
in a kind of non-sacramentalized uh, way, but um, you know, if you if you want to, the, the blessing, actually does require a priest or a yeah, deacon right. to be mm -hmm. uh, to be honest. And and uh, I, I don't know where that information came from, right. but it certainly wasn't from the Catholic Church. So um, I would say that that's right. probably some misinterpretation right. of the nature of uh, uh, right. giving a blessing to a person or right, something like you of said, that nature. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, they talk about, you know, as a parent, you can bless your child or something like that in, in that way, but it's yeah. not the same as blessing yeah. a rosary or anything like that, right? Oh, yeah, no, I, yeah. I can't figure it, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah. that's where that's the confusion comes. Probably some misinterpretation. Yeah, yeah right. Probably. Right. Dear yeah. Father Spitzer, a friend told me that you cannot trust the Bible because it advocates slavery. How should I have responded? Carrie. Well, Carrie, uh, two quick things. Uh, there's a distinction that was made by Josef Ratzinger um, uh, way back, actually, in the in the late 60s, um, where he just and this is a very good, important hermeneutical principle in scripture interpretation. What Ratzinger says is there's two parts to every scriptural um, phrase that you read in your Bible. Mm -hmm. There's the core message, which is inerrant. And then what he calls, there's the external form of the expression. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, because we as Catholics, we believe in, we don't believe in the dictation view of inspiration. In other words, the dictation view is God comes to the biblical author and just says, uh, biblical author, here's the way it is. Take it down word for word, verbatim, I'm giving it to you. Okay, <clears throat> we don't believe that as Catholics. We believe that the biblical uh, the biblical author is a co-participant along with God. So God inspires the biblical author, but the biblical author is going to use his cultural categories, his understanding of the world, uh, his um, uh, viewpoints mm -hmm. on, on uh, what is acceptable and not acceptable within and around the cultures of his time, et cetera, et cetera. So says Ratzinger, these are not in uh, inerrant. Mm -hmm. In other words, the external form of the expression is not inerrant. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, slavery is one issue that comes up in the Bible, but s slavery was there. It was a part of the culture. This is the worldview of the <clears throat> biblical author, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it's part of the core message of uh, the scripture. The core message of the scripture, you can always determine it by looking at what Jesus says. Mm -hmm. So anything that it comes out in an Old Testament uh, phrase, for example, that seems to be in conflict <laughs> with what Jesus says, uh, you can pretty much figure that's the external form of the expression. Mm -hmm. That's like the, the, the skin of the fruit or something, you know, the, um, you know or, but it's, it's not the inner core uh, of the message. So, for example, I, I think people know that Moses says uh, as well, um, when you conquer a land, if that um, Canaanite kingdom resists you, when you finish conquering it, kill everything uh, that breathes in that place. And, mm -hmm. of course, would Jesus agree with that? Of course he wouldn't agree with that. We see in countless places that mm -hmm. Jesus says, don't harm any one of these little ones, and so forth and so on. He's very clear on mm -hmm. this. So how can you possibly, you know, reconcile them? And Ratzinger says, that's not a problem. Because, of course, what is the core message that Moses mm -hmm. is trying to give? The core message is, you should resist any attempt to undermine 
the covenant law right. and the covenant message that I have given you. Resist at all costs. His method for doing that, though, the how of what he is trying to accomplish is the external form of the expression. It's not inerrant. It's going to be superseded by Jesus. And in retrospect, it was superseded by Jesus. So the fact what Rottinger is saying is, well, Jesus, you know, Moses says that it's easy how to do it. You just eliminate the competition. Mm -hmm. But of course, we know that the later prophets discouraged that and Jesus totally changed. He superseded it mm -hmm. completely. So <clears throat> if you keep that um, in mind, you know, of how to interpret mm -hmm. the scripture, that there's always two parts. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, Ratzinger is very clear. He says, look, you know, we as lay people are, you know, we as even uh, good theologians, we as scripture scholars, at the end of the day, we're not going to have mm -hmm. <clears throat> the, uh, the ability to make a definitive interpretation. That's why Jesus had to start a church. That's why Jesus had to give uh, the Pope, uh, the successor to Peter in that office that he creates of the highest office with supreme authority. That's why he had to create an office of supreme and definitive authority because at the end of the day, the church is ultimately responsible for determining what is the core message and what is the inerrant form of the expression? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. <clears throat> we see moral development all the time in the Old Testament. In the patriarchal period, for example, it's very clear. Let's take vengeance, for example. In the patriarchal period, we see that, um, you know, if Cain gets harmed, you can avenge him seven times. And, of course, we know that that was taken to 70 times. Um, you know, uh, uh, if other uh, folks in the patriarchal period, uh, w you know, some crime was committed against them, uh, you could basically uh, kill a whole town off uh, for doing something. And there was no limit to the vengeance. Now Moses comes along. And in the covenant, what does Moses say? Remember, this is all the external form of the expression, if I borrow from Ratzinger here. So the external form of the expression is not inerrant. It's conditioned by human culture, human times, human understanding of the world, human mm -hmm. worldview, etc. So the main thing to remember then is uh, Moses comes along and he goes, no, you can't avenge an unlimited number of times or seven times or 70 times. You have to have parity. The max you can do is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, mm -hmm. not a single scintilla more. Now, of course, Jesus comes along and he says, well, that's, you know, that was a great improvement over the patriarchal mm -hmm. view, right? Patriarchs are from 1800 to 1200. Moses is from 1200 uh, for a long, long time until the, the, the later prophets after the exile, etc. And, of course, Jesus comes along. Um, and he says, well, no, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I'm, what I'm telling you is love your enemies, do good for those who hate you, forgive 70 times, seven times. So he actually uses that very same phrase mm -hmm. that was used to justify unlimited um, you know, um, vengeance. Now Jesus says, no, it's, uh, it should be unlimited forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So you see that superseding that's going on. And, um, uh, you know, the Pontifical Biblical Commission is very clear that there's moral development in the Old Testament. So, you know, you don't want to go around saying, well, it says here in the scriptures, you know, that uh, uh, you, you can have unlimited vengeance. So it's right there mm -hmm. in the patriarchs. You can't go around saying, well, then I'm going to take that. 
No, right. says Ratzinger, you're responsible for looking at the teaching of Jesus. You're responsible for seeing, you know, what's a part of the core message and what is the external form of the expression. And if you're unsure, where do you go? To the church who was given the grace, who was given the definitive authority to make a definitive interpretation of what is part of the inerrant uh, core message and what is part of the not inerrant external form of the expression. Oh. So I, that's kind okay. of like a whole theology course in five minutes. I'm, okay. I'm sorry to do that, but it's a. Um, I have a book um, out that's called uh, Science, Reason, and Faith: Discovering right. the Bible. It's an OSV book, and if you just go to, um, I, I have it split out into a set of questions. But if you go to um, uh, Old Testament question number 22, is there moral development in the Old Testament? Uh, if you go there, you can see that. And I have a right. whole explanation of Ratzinger's principle in OT number two right. uh, of that book, Science, Reason, and Faith, Discovering the Bible. And certainly you can check out EWTN's religious catalog at EWTNRC.com if you want to get oh, the entire... Yes entire tome there so let's move on to one of your other tomes uh, on uh, sure. page 153 sure you say contrary to popular myth religion is not an impediment to strong principles and ideas but rather is one of the greatest motivators of them. who thinks that is that really a common myth that religions is it, it, religion is not an impediment to strong principles and ideas is well you know I mean, I can't, it's almost providential that you should bring up that question mm -hmm. because we were just talking about the very accusation. You see what religion has, you know, uh, fostered. You know, here we've got an mm -hmm. instance of, um, you know, vengeance or genocide okay. or whatever, you know, and, and they take these things and they say, see, it's in the Bible, mm. you know, and because uh, it's in the Bible, they don't make any distinctions. There's no hermeneutic, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And the reason you need a church is, you know, sola scriptura. Are you kidding me? You, you, if you're a layperson and you're opening up that Old Testament or New Testament indiscriminately without a church helping you and guiding you, are you kidding me? I mean, you could come up with some pretty strange ideas and a lot of people have. So the reason I bring this out uh, to people is they come out and say, oh, we've uh, progressed so much. But the reason we progress so much is not because of the science of psychology. It's not because of the science of sociology. It's because Jesus Christ changed the entire moral underpinnings toward love, which he very definitively defined in the Beatitudes and many other places. In his parables, like, you know, the prodigal son parable, the, uh, the uh, Good Samaritan parable, etc. <clears throat> He's done all the homework. The church has carried it out for almost 2,000 years. So you can be sure that if, you know, what the church is teaching is, 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 uh, is absolutely terrific. Mm -hmm. And so religion, religion undermining mm -hmm. uh, the idea of morality, no way. Mm -hmm. Religion paved the whole way for the, uh, well, at least Christianity certainly paved the whole way uh, for the doctrine of love, the definition of love, which has guided uh, the church since its inception uh, to, uh, to carry out uh, what Jesus instructed them uh, to carry uh, out. And that's, mm -hmm. of course, contained right. in the Beatitudes and contained in uh, Jesus' teaching okay. of, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, accompanying uh, love of God, you know, for the highest commandment. 
Okay, great. I'm happy that that fit like that. Uh, another question. <clears throat> you say, what's more important uh, on page 155? Unmitigated freedom of speech and press with its negative individual, familial, and cultural consequences or mitigation of some freedom of speech in the press to help resist the damaging effects of pornography? Because the argument with pornography gets into it's, it's in the mind of the yeah. beholder and it's a free speech issue. And obviously with the Internet, there's lots of discussions going on about free speech. And there's a lot of concerns, though, at, today that the government has been coordinating with certain web services, et cetera, to maybe limit people's free speech. So do we want to be limiting people's yeah. free speech? And who makes that decision? I don't think we want to be limiting people's free speech, uh, the freedom of, of real expression of ideas. Of course we don't. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be very nuanced when we talk about this. Okay. However, uh, pornography as a form of uh, expression that's needed uh, for you know political transparency and for the free exchange of ideas to take place well, this is a bit of a stretch. Mm -hmm. I got to put out hardcore porn because that's really an expression uh, of, you know, my will or an expression of ideas that are really necessary uh, for a democracy uh, to, to fully thrive. I mean, we've forgotten what free speech was intended for by the founding fathers. I mean, obviously, hardcore pornography or violent pornography you know, as an expression uh, that's needed for political commerce, it's needed for the free exchange of ideas. You know, it's got nothing to do with that. I mean, this is all about making a whole lot of money from the exploitation of various people who are part of the pornography industry. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't even believe that it's 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 considered to be needed. Uh, mm -hmm you know, uh, freedom of speech for political expression. But of course you can say, well, once you open that door, it's a slippery slope. Oh, right. I think you can find very good definitions that will prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. We can pretty much tell by right. common sense, you know, <clears throat> you know what, uh, what's really right. uh, uh, needed for a true exchange of ideas versus what's exploitative right. and obviously right. commercial you know, exploitation for the benefit of a few people who, you know, really don't care about the addiction. I mean, if people want pornography, let's face it, they can, get they it, can go mean. find it. Right, exactly. But they can get, why, why do we have to dump it onto the internet free of charge right. to hook up, you know, these kids, you know, and uh, hook them on pornography, you know, before they're right. 10 Absolutely. years old, you know, they're, they're right. looking at it on their computers. Right. It's ridiculous. I mean, we even have to control it, you know, with, you know, software in our, like Covenant Eyes, which I think is a great software, don't get mm -hmm. me wrong. I mean, I think you, you do need these, uh, 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 you know, controls right. and filters on, on the computer of little kids, because it's just so easy to get free uh, pornography now. Right. But, uh, yeah, how, how you yeah. can put that under free expression. Right. Well, it kind of fits into <clears> you the know, stuff that goes on with some of the schools where there's been some concerns about some of the books. And it's not the question that the book doesn't have the right to be published. The question is, is it appropriate for that book to be available to some young, very young age group? That's really the issue. And they kind of, oh, they smudge that together uh, to murk up the issue. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. So in your conclusion on this section, which covers a lot of others on page 188, uh, you talk about, go mm -hmm. back to the idea, though the Catholic Church has been accused of being out of step 
behind the times on its moral teachings on homosexual lifestyle pornography, gender change, and artificial birth control. And the first one you deal with is the fact that homosexual lifestyle promotes sexual relationships that are opposite the ideal <clears throat> for committed sexual love taught by Jesus. Hundreds of lifetime partners, very short duration of relationships, a virtual absence of monogamy in relationships lasting more than five years. But those aren't the stories that get promoted. We always have the couple that's been together for 40 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the main thing that um, I was trying to say is the, the, the Catholic Church gets a bad rap mm -hmm. uh, when you ignore half the evidence. It goes right. back to the old logical expression, there are far more errors of omission than commission. And that is so true. You can lie best by just omitting all of the data that, you know, supports the other side's viewpoint. And in this particular case, I just have to say, the data is on the side <coughs> I'm sorry, of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. No question about it. Mm. If you look at the data, <clears throat> people who are, you know, um, as I said, you're in a homosexual lifestyle. Um, uh, if you look at those uh, statistics from the Archives of General Psychiatry, you see skyrocketing increases of depression, anxiety, especially suicides, uh, suicidal ideation. I mean, 40% uh, you know, if that population is contemplating goods. And you just say, well, wait a minute, that's due to stigmatization. Is it really due to stigmatization? Mm -hmm. I don't think it is, because, of course, all these statistics come from the Netherlands and Sweden and New Zealand. So um, my, my thought is, uh, that's just not true. And so, I mean, yes, of course, there's always stigmatization. But uh, it is, a, you know, in some countries, it's much more of a factor. When the stigma is it, uh, when the uh, depression um, ratios are the same in the United States <clears throat> as in the Netherlands, which of course is very free and so forth, mm -hmm. and uh, in this regard, you can just see that is less of an issue than the actual lifestyle right. itself. Just let the statistics from the Archives of General Psychiatry speak for themselves. It's not necessary to suppress that data. <clears throat> the same thing with transgenderism. Do you ever hear? Uh, you know, that the increase in the rates of suicides for those who receive a sexual reassignment surgery. Do mm -hmm. you ever hear that there's a 20 times increase in the suicide rate? So that if the general suicide rate is 0.6%, I mean, it goes all the way up to clear, uh, nearly 13, 12 to 13% of that population uh, just with uh, getting a, a sexual reassignment surgery. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable. The, the mortality rate goes up by a factor of three times just with starting to receive mm -hmm. you know the uh, uh, the um, um, hormones of the opposite uh, sex from your biological sex that you're born with so the the idea is you know three times the mortality rate if if it were anything except the transgender issue anything the whole medical establishment would be worried in publicizing this and you know you know look at covid i mean uh, there's a much higher mortality right you know with with uh, uh, starting to get uh, hormones I, I mean why aren't we treating this like covid uh, because it's not within the social game plan mm -hmm. so we uh, suppressed those statistics but this is a 50 year study based in the netherlands that is saying this and that's why great britain and sweden and finland and Norway and all these other countries who are so progressive a mere 15 years ago have reversed their tracks and totally taken it back. The Catholic Church, once again, just standing up for this, just saying, yeah, 
uh, we've been saying that uh, this is not the right solution to the issue. I mean, yes, it sounds like you're being open and friendly and supportive, mm -hmm. but uh, being open and friendly and supportive, if it increases the suicide rates by 20 times, 20 times, 2,000 percent, are you kidding me? What are we doing here? I mean, it, it's like uh, uh, you, you can't believe uh, what's going on, and, and so the uh, you know the, the same thing holds true with uh, mm -hmm. pornography. I mean, everybody in the, what you hear is this is a victimless crime. This right. you know is something that we can promote as freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera. But is anybody looking at the fact that it's the fastest growing addiction uh, in, in the world? Is anybody? Uh, well, there's a lot of people who are actually studying mm -hmm. it and looking at it, but the, the, nobody's publishing the data. We can see that the more you read. Um, uh, are viewing pornography, the greater your depression rate, the lower uh, your religious practice rate, and, and of course, the, the more likely you are to get a divorce by almost 2.5 to three times higher divorce rates uh, than uh, if you're not viewing pornography uh, on a regular basis. You look at the job loss statistics if you are viewed versus not viewing pornography. You look at the dangerous uh, sexual external behaviors if you look at, I mean, I'm telling you, the Catholic Church is getting a bad rap for giving really good advice. Right. In other words, we're not just saying what's right or wrong relative uh, to, to, to Christ's teaching. That's, of course, the important thing that the church is supposed to do. But at the same time, right. it just so happens that all these secular studies are coming out. Long-term good uh, uh, you know, secular studies are pointing out, hey, <clears throat> The depression rate is through the ceiling. The anxiety rate is through the ceiling. Yeah. The suicidal ideation rate is through the ceiling. I mean, when you get a seven times increase in suicide uh, contemplation, a five to seven times increase, depending on the study you use, uh, say, you know, of the, the major studies that were done mm -hmm. in Holland uh, on these things, that's, that's huge. Right. You know, I mean, five to seven times, times. We're not talking about five to seven percent. We're talking about five to seven times higher rates. So you look at that and you go, what's wrong with that lifestyle. If it isn't stigmatization, everybody ought to have an interest in this. Everybody ought to tell their friends, I'm not so sure you should just uh, do this and just come out of the closet. You know, there's, there might be some mm -hmm. real consequences here. And, and, and right. so the point that I, I guess I'm trying to get to is I think we really need to get the full picture. There are far more errors right. of omission than commission. And in this particular right. case, I really think we, the Catholic Church has you know, because it's trying to, to spread the light of Christ, the, the light of true charity, of true love, of true covenant love in, right. in sexual uh, love, and so forth and so on. Because the church is doing this, they're getting a bad rap. Mm -hmm. But the statistics are on the side of the church, and that's very clear from Moral Wisdom of the right. Catholic Church, my book. I have, by the way, I have 40 pages of bibliography there mm -hmm. that uh, basically are the studies secular studies that show that this is correct. Right. So anyway, that's why I came out with that conclusion. I just thought, right. hey, we're, this is not right. right. I mean, if you, if you try and say what you think is good for their spiritual health, right. their emotional health, their, their relational health, right. and their marital health, you just say, you know, what the statistics, uh, Dr. Wilcox's right. book, uh, you know, that absolutely. just came out Father, that you were just saying at the beginning right. of the program. Right, absolutely. What reminds yeah. me of the uh, line from Into the Woods, nice is different than good. And that's a problem I think yeah. we have in our culture right now. So if you would give us your, uh, yeah. your blessing on the way out oh. the door, especially here yeah. on, on Ash Wednesday as we begin Lent. 
And may Almighty God bless you. And in this Lenten season, through your self-sacrifices and through your prayers, send you a, a, a greater insight into his love, a greater awareness of his presence and love, so that as you bind more closely together with him and with the Blessed Virgin, you will find yourself more easily resisting temptation and moving into that saintly life to which you were called by our Savior in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next time. And don't forget, of course, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. We'll continue <clears throat> with Cultural Consequences of Pornography next week. We'll probably be getting close to wrapping it up. EWTN's bookmark, Building a Civilization of Love, a Catholic Response to Racism by our great friend and radio host, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Perfect timing. And we've got a wonderful program, Acedia, The Diabolical in Disguise, an EWTN original documentary exposed the origins and spiritual causes of sadness and depression through Acedia and provides understanding and light of faith. And you'll learn what that word actually means Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN. I'm Doug Keck. This is Father Spitzer's Universe. We'll see you next time.